Greetings and welcome to another episode of the Unpacking Islamophobia podcast sponsored by the Bridge Initiative here at Georgetown University. My name is Arsalan Iftikhar. I am a human rights lawyer, senior fellow at the Bridge Initiative and author of the book Fear of a Muslim Planet, Global Islamophobia in the New World Order. My guest today is Reem Sara Alwan, who is a French legal scholar and a PhD candidate in comparative law at the University Toulouse Capitole in France. Her research focuses on civil liberties, constitutional law, and human rights across France, Europe, and North America. Reem Sara's work focuses on the practice of reasonable accommodation with regard to the protection of freedom of religion, and her work has appeared in the New York Times, Foreign Policy, Al Jazeera, BBC, and France 24, as well as being named to one of the 2023 European Young Leaders Under 40 by the Friends of Europe organization. Reem Sara Alouan, thank you for joining us today. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me. So uh, today we're discussing Islamophobia in France, and you cannot really discuss French Islamophobia without talking about the concept of laïcité, which many people have defined to be hyper-secularism, which separates church from state, in our context, mosque from state. So my first question to you, Reem Sara, is can you please give our audience a little bit of sociopolitical historical context about the French concept of laïcité and how it has been weaponized to target Muslim civic life in France today? I think this is indeed a, a crucial uh, question because you that's actually the problem. What is laïcité? Uh, and uh, this lack of understanding is part of the problem as well. Um, to, to understand, uh, first, we have to understand France's culture and the context as a whole. Uh, not just with like anti-Muslim hatred, anti-Muslim racism, Islamophobia, and so on and so forth, but you have to understand that France has always had a complicated, to say the least, relation with religion as a whole because of our history. Uh, our history, especially with the Roman Catholic Church, uh, which used to have power in our country. So um, to make it really, um, to, to summarize it or try to explain it in a very brief way, because I have read a lot of things about laïcité, which are not always accurate. There is a lot of weaponization of the concept itself. Uh, our system of management of uh, state and religion relations is based on the idea that the, st the, the state must be protected from the potential abuses of religion. I'm going to be provocative. I always say that usually when I'm being asked that question, whether it's students or journalists or um, whatever. Um, there are two countries that, in my opinion, are like France and the United States of America. Let me explain. Uh, like I said, in France, uh, it's the state that tries to uh, make sure to protect the institution, the people from the potential abuses of religion. In the US through the first amendment, and please uh, stop me and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, it's the other way around, right? It's yep. we the U.S. state makes sure uh, through the First Amendment that uh, the the people people's freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, uh, to believe, to not believe, is protected against this right. Is protected against the potential abuses of the state because of your history as well. We all know that a lot of uh, people who immigrated to the U.S. from Europe escaped religious 
persecutions, right? So this is the idea, uh, and of course, uh, you, so so in the U.S., uh, you can be as religious as you want, and the state, in theory, must be neutral, and neutral in the sense that every religious belief, every like, can interact with public life. In France, the idea is really um, this idea of neutrality uh, to achieve equality. And uh, when you look uh, at the famous law of 1905 on separation of church and state, where weirdly enough, the word laicite does not appear in, uh, mm. the, in the law itself, in the text, okay. but it's implied because, I mean, if you want to go back to history, you go back to the revolution and even before, but it has inspired this law. And uh, for most of the 20th century, laicite for... France was a quite very liberal concept uh, and has essentially been understood to impose religious neutrality upon the state and its civil servants, whereas um, individuals, so private individuals, were guaranteed freedom of conscience, which include freedom of religion. So the right to believe in God or spirit or whatever, the right to not believe in anything, the right to change religion, which was a novelty at the time. And uh, if you look at the debates before the National Assembly at the time, two schools were fighting each other. So a school that really wanted a hardliner version of separation of church and state, as in to get rid of religion, and a more liberal uh, vision of it, led by Aristide Briand at that time, but he was not the only one, which really the idea was not to prohibit religion or get rid of religion, but to avoid abuses of religion and to protect the people as well. So, um, so, so really, uh, and through that, one of the elements is the state does not fund religion. But that's a principle because we have a lot of exception. Welcome to French law. Uh, and um, so this was the basis. The state is neutral, not the people. You can be as religious as you want, but there is a limit as long as it does not disturb public order. And of course, that's the part that will eventually fast forward to nowadays will cause problem. On top of that, uh, you have to understand that throughout uh, centuries, this concept has evolved and had, and its interpretation has changed uh, throughout time, and especially since like the 90s-ish, uh, laicite, as I wrote before, as I said before, has been weaponized uh, post-decolonization. And more and more now, it has been, in, it is interpreted in a very illiberal way, where more and more we want to remove religious visibility from the public space, and especially, unfortunately, the first group that is targeted are Muslims. And we can develop on that a bit later. And uh, as it has happened with religion, uh, the same way is happening with laicite, uh, from a pretty liberal concept that makes sure to separate state and religion, now it has been transformed into a tool for political identity. And uh, nowadays, we consider France as the cornerstone of French identity. But you have to know uh, that, I mean, laicite does not even apply across the whole French territory. 
there are places in France, you know, France is not limited to metropolitan France within uh, the European continent. We have overseas territories. Uh, and even within mainland France, for example, if you take Alsace-Moselle, Leiste does not apply. We have a concordat which recognizes three uh, religions and taxpayer pay for the clergy, right? Um, so Catholicism, Judaism, and Protestantism uh, are, are recognized. In Guyana, uh, the, in the territory of Guyana, the law of 1905 as well does not apply. And uh, state and church relations are under the stages of a royal ordinance of 1828 that is still being implemented today. Uh, in um, in uh, French Polynesia, what is said Futuna, Saint Pierre et Miquelon, uh, we also have, uh, I mean, just so to say that we make it into a tool of national identity for political purposes. Things are far more, it, it used to be a liberal concept, it's not anymore. You know, for, for most people, you know, their first exposure to Islamophobia in France has been through the very famous hijab bans that we've seen over the last 20 years. Obviously, the first uh, that we saw in 2004 by then President Jacques Chirac. Throughout the years, we've seen numerous burkini bans and, and other bans related to Muslim uh, women's garb. You know, my second question to you is why do you think French politicians seem to be obsessed with policing Muslim women in terms of their religious clothing and attire? Indeed, <laughs> there is a, a, a very French obsession about it, but I would say just in general, uh, societies are quite obsessed with policing uh, women's body. Uh, and, and it's a very interesting to see how um, we have this idea of freedom, but uh, isn't it ironic that by freedom, we mean we are going to tell you how to be civilized, how to yep. be quote unquote integrated. And by saying that, we are going to impose a view that we deem acceptable uh, without actually caring for your choices. And I would argue that <clears throat> forcing a woman to wear a hijab or to wear a long you know, to wear a certain type of clothes is wrong. And the same sure. way that forcing a woman to uh, remove their headscarves or dress a certain way is also wrong. So I think uh, women are, uh, are crucial uh, for the fight of freedom of human rights. But when it comes specifically to Muslim women, uh, it, it has been going on, I would say, since colonization. And um, especially the colonization of Algeria, I'm, I'm taking Algeria specifically because, of course, all colonization across um, the different continents that France uh, colonized, whether in Africa or in, um, in Asia. Uh, Algeria, the specificity is that it was a French département, as in it was a French proper territory. Mm -hmm. And in Algeria, uh, the, the weaponization of women's body was uh, key to the colonization. And uh, Muslim women have always been uh, perceived as two things. First, this very Orientalism kind of mentality, like this objectification of uh, women's body, Muslim women's body as in, oh, like the Oriental women, what is behind that headscarf. And quite disgusting, if you ask me, quite extremely misogynistic right. and, and uh, founded in racism, really, and um, yeah. objectifying this woman. Uh, but it has also been perceived as a threat 
because Muslim women in Algeria were also part of the fight for independence and uh, their headscarves for many of them were also a tool to protest the French colonization and a tool to express their identity as Alger free Algerian women. Of course, I'm summarizing, right? There's, there's so much to say about it, but it's, it's both, it's really both a tool of objectification of Muslims of women body, but also perceived as a threat. And um, fast forward after decolonization, when the first um, you know, group of people who immigrated to France post-1962, uh, the, the landscape of France changed really. And uh, when Muslims became visible, immediately, you know, with the rise of the far right, uh, with this, you know, with the different social and economic crisis we faced, of course, women are the first targets. So it, it's quite, a, it's a quite tricky thing. But yeah, we had the headscarf affair uh, in 1989, uh, which was extremely interesting because when it happened, uh, you know that at school back in the days, I mean, before 2004, uh, kids could, war I mean, were able to wear religious signs. Uh, because uh, freedom of religion, freedom of conscience also apply to children. Uh, there are mm -hmm. international declarations for that and international treaties, and we are signatories to these treaties. And in uh, 1989, uh, when uh, the first headscarf affair occurred uh, in uh, the city of Creil, so in northern France, in, I mean, uh, suburbs, uh, whole outcry uh, boss on the right, but also on the left wing. That's something you have to understand. It's not just a yeah. right wing thing. Right. It's also a certain part of uh, the socialist party as well. Um, the, the, the government asked uh, for an opinion to the Council of State, uh, which is to make it simple, uh, the highest administrative uh, court we have. So it's like the administrative Supreme Court for France. They released an opinion, a very important one, which was quite liberal. As long as the wearing of the headscarf or the religious and did not disturb public order, which includes security, for example, uh, let's say like a student wearing a headscarf is like in a chemistry class, but like her headscarf, you know, like that might be limited because her, the integrity and also the safety of the school might be at stake, then you can limit the wearing. Yeah. But otherwise kids can wear it as long as it does not disturb public order. But of course, uh, this was, uh, I mean, this was not followed. Uh, a commission was created and eventually it led to uh, the adoption of the law of 2004 on the prohibition of, um, of uh, conspicuous religious signs. But of course, nobody mm -hmm. defined what conspicuous is. I'm nope. a, I'm a, I do law, you know, so words matter, as you probably know. Uh, and nobody defined what is a religious sign? Because it's not the role of the legislator or a judge to define what is a religious sign, uh, which means that it opened a Pandora box. So hmm. in theory, all, and it's the case, all religious signs are prohibited. But the fuzziness of this law, and we all know, like, if you read the parliamentary debates, it was really aimed to target Muslims, okay? Right. So now uh, everything can really be a religious sign. So, for example, um, you had a student being kicked out, I mean, expelled from school for wearing a long skirt from H.A.M., right? 
um, literally from HAM. I'm not, I don't have any stock at HAM, but that was the, the context. Um, sure. But because this girl was of the Muslim face and wore a headscarf outside of school, she would remove it when she get to school. Immediately, uh, and that's the interesting and concerning part, we are identifying the potential behavior. You are Muslim, you wear long skirts, so you are violating laicite. Uh, more recently, uh, you certainly have heard about the Ebeya uh, affair. All of a sudden, sure. Ebeyas, nobody heard about Ebeyas before, like <laughs> literally, or Khamis, you know, the traditional yep. garment worn, um, not just by Muslim men, actually. <laughs> it's, uh, religious authorities all kind of agree that ebayas are not religious. It's more cultural. It's worn mm -hmm. by, it's a traditional garment worn, especially in certain regions of the um, of uh, the Middle East, uh, speaking broadly. And all of a sudden, it became uh, the threat number one in public school. Even though we have other issues like understaffed, like teachers not being paid, uh, being understaffed. Uh, our public service, education, public service is literally falling apart. No budget, like teachers are mistreated. It's, it's a catastrophe. But all of a sudden so far, the problem number one in France is the wearing of abeyas. So it creates all of that to say that all of these um, stories, really, all of this uh, manufactured debate focus on Muslims, which obviously create tensions, divisions, and that's how democracy is at stake, really. Because we ask Muslims to integrate, quote-unquote, uh, Muslims who are French, born and raised here. We are at a time we cannot say, like, oh, they don't speak the language. No, they are French. Mm -hmm. But keep saying you don't belong here. Yeah. I mean, what kind of society do we want to live in, really? You know, I want to unpack a little bit more uh, about the historical legacy of French colonization that you talked about, especially in Algeria. And I wanted to ask you, how do you think that it contributed to the current dynamics of Islamophobia that we see in France today, particularly in shaping societal perceptions and attitudes towards Muslims of Algerian or other Maghrebi North African origin? Uh, the, the, clearly, like I stated before, uh, the historical legacy of French colonization is absolutely crucial as it helps you understand the root causes of it. It doesn't explain everything, but clearly, like if you want to understand the logic used, the rhetoric used, you have to go back to the colonial era. And um, the crucial role of France's colonial past, uh, more specifically after in the aftermath of the War of Independence in Algeria, has somehow altered uh, the uh, French vision of assimilation. Uh, mm. I remind people, I, I probably forgot to mention this, but France does not recognize minorities. Okay, we mm. statistics are prohibited. Uh, statistics based on ethnicity, race, uh, etc. Why, 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 why is that? Uh, it, it's a, well, it's a couple of things. Uh, first, we deem that uh, France is a unitary state, as in uh, there, there is one French people, there is one people, the French people, uh, which in theory is great, right? I mean, okay, we don't see your differences, like as opposed as, for example, US multiculturalism I mean, in the UK or Canada, Australia, and so on and so forth. Um, but we all know that 
in practice, yeah, we do see race, even if we don't recognize it. We have racial sure. profiling. And also because uh, on a historical level, uh, we used to have numbers. We used to have statistics, except that it was used uh, against the Jews. And that was used to send them to concentration camps. So having statistics has still, I mean, you know, um, we still haven't forgotten what we did with those numbers, right? And it's still a trauma here. Sure. Uh, but however, at the same time, um, we also need numbers to quantify precisely uh, what are the damage and the extent of anti-Muslim hatred, anti-Muslim racism, Islamophobia. Uh, so it's a very difficult conversation that nobody, everybody tiptoe around it. Um, and uh, as a result, we don't have exact numbers. Now, there are a very couple of exceptions, but very much regulated uh, regarding research in academia. Okay. But again, there is a framework, so it's extremely like, all the way, it's really illegal. And, and that's why, but it serves also like when, for example, a far right right wing or i mean when a politician in general start to use numbers we ask how did you get those numbers it's illegal in france hmm. so wow. it's 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 very tricky so i understand the french side of we need to be careful but at the same time uh it's true when i look at i mean let's talk about the u.s since like uh we hear but it's also useful to be able to quantify uh, the extent of uh hatred and how to address it so I guess we need to find a middle way, but the question is, there is no, I mean, what is the political will as well? So it's an open debate in here. Well, you know, you, you, you mentioned the, you know, the, the rise of sort of far, far right, uh, you know, politicians and political movements. And obviously we have, you know, the rise of Donald Trump here uh, in, the, you know, in the United States. But as you know, um, you know, we, in France, we have the rise of Marine Le Pen, Front National, the National Front and other right wing uh, political players. And so I wanted to ask you as my fourth question to you, how has the rise of far right political movements in France contributed to the exacerbation of Islamophobia in France? And most importantly, what are the implications for French Muslims as these movements gain in popularity? Meaning what will the legal protections be, if any, for millions of French Muslims, uh, you know, as the the influence of these far right you know, political players like Marine Le Pen or Front National continue to grow in French electoral politics today? You know, um, and I think it's also valid in the, I mean, in other countries outside of France, um, in France at least, the far right has been um, normalized, uh, mainstreamed, uh, because we allowed it to be. Uh, for more than uh, 30 years in this country, uh, the, the, the French political debate uh, across the political spectrum has increasingly centered itself around identity issues uh, at the expense of more, you know, urgent, pressing topics such as unemployment, inflation, the rise of poverty, like we have a serious issue here in France, uh, the dismantlement of public services in this country, etc. And as a result, um, there, there was, there is a very uh, limited space left in French politics to advocate for uh, marginalized, vulnerable communities such as Muslims or immigrants or refugees or people of color, LGBTQ people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, the, the the 
consequences, the outcome is that those groups, those communities, uh, on top of being constantly vil vilified by uh, the politician, the media, uh, and victims of horrific discrimination, racism, hatred, uh, are also witness, um, almost in a parallel way, uh, their basic civil rights, civil liberties being curtailed. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, for instance, the traditional rights in this country, in France, uh, the conservatives, has radicalized itself to the far right. Uh, we live in a time today, I can't make the difference between like a regular right-wing guy with a far-right politician. Uh, and this tendency has also happened within the left, which is extremely divided today. And uh, what I would call hardliner secularists constantly going after Muslims. I jokingly call them the far-right of the left. Uh, <laughs> there, there is a strong yeah. divide yeah. Uh, that appeared uh, on that matter regarding laicite and the ongoing fight between the hardliner anti-religion secularists, but they really target Muslims specifically, uh, what right. we call in French, laïcars. And uh, those who stood, um, they're a minority, but they, it still they still exist, who stood for a more liberal and appeased version of laïcité. And uh, whether it's the right or the left or whatever is in the center, um, the, um, the, the, the strategy, if you want, uh, to seduce to attract the conservative uh, electorate failed, and uh, and um, the left actually really never managed to find its once prominent spot in the political landscape. So mainstream actors have allowed the far right to rise and to flourish. Uh, the you know I always say that we did not I mean we did not elect a far-right president, but the far-right ideology is already implemented. And uh, the, the, this ideology has been implemented in different forms, type of legislation targeting uh, people we deem incapable of, quote-unquote, integrating uh, the, the France or uh, abiding by, quote-unquote, French Republican values. And uh, we consider them as a threat. So for Muslims, uh, for example, there is not a single year for 20 years, for 20, 30 years, there is not a single year where uh, we, uh, we, we, we don't come with a new piece of legislation to target civil liberties. It became a joke, really. At some point, I'm like, okay, well, they can't go any further. Yes, they can. As we say in France, you know, impossible n'est pas français. Impossible is not French. Like there is at some point, the sky is the limit, and I'm not even sure about that. Uh, the latest being the law on separatism. And also with the rise of uh, Islamist-inspired uh, terrorism, uh, of course, it, it was used as an excuse instead of addressing the root causes of radicalization and terrorism. Uh, so instead of addressing those issues, uh, we go after normal people who just want to live their normal lives. And, and people tend to forget that it's one thing to go after Muslims and people don't really care because Muslims, you know, but what right. people don't understand, it's um, it's a test. It's really a test. Uh, it, it's like, you know, when you do experiments in the lab, that's mm -hmm. the same thing. This law will apply to Muslims, but eventually it will apply to every other single group that the state does deem uh, dangerous or uh, problematic.
And this is what's going on. The law on separatism was really framed, uh, the law, sorry, fighting and um, separatism was really framed for Muslims, but now it's implementing against climate change activists, against, um, you know, uh, human rights advocacy groups. And, uh, and mainstream parties on top of that have also embraced white supremacy theories uh, such as the theory of the great replacement, which mm -hmm. is a conspiracy theory uh, that has been, um, you know, conceptualized, if I may say, it's a wrong term, but uh, by a French white supremacist author, Renaud Camus, and mm -hmm. that has inspired many white supremacist terrorists in Norway, New Zealand, uh, Quebec, and Canada. Yep. And uh, the problem is we took this horrific ideology out of the gutter and we put it on the table uh, immediately. And by stigmatizing uh, Muslims and eventually migrants, refugees, uh, we have a lot of Pandora box again to be opened uh, by telling people that they have no place in our society. Uh, reactionary, and I think it's the same in the US, correct me if I'm wrong, hijacked the concept of free speech mm -hmm. uh, to add further stigma uh, to minorities who are already vulnerable and to silence now dissenting voices. Uh, look at the debate we had in France on wokeism. You had the same in the US on uh, the spread of uh, Islamo leftism in academia, targeting scholars, academic working on issues such as discrimination, racism, etc. Uh, those four intellectuals, like the, as I call, like the TV intellectuals, uh, who are specialists of everything and nothing, uh, who try to justify this type of hatred by giving it some sort of intellectual flavor. And of course, it's appealing then to people who don't know any better, right? Who are not exposed to, uh, who, who, yeah, who are ignorant. And we, we give a platform to them. We allow them to, uh, to abide by this horrific ideology that is really at odds with you know, liberty, equality, fraternity, our motto. And the dehumanization of the most vulnerable communities has allowed the far right to have a carte blanche to commit those horrible crimes. You know, uh, my, my final question to you, Reem Sarah, is, is about the portrayal of Muslims in French media, both good and bad. And so I was wondering if you could discuss how the portrayal of Muslims within French media both news media, pop culture, uh, again, both good and bad, and the language that's used by politicians and media professionals today affects the way that French society writ large both perceives and stigmatizes the Muslim community throughout France. There are a lot of paradoxes when it comes to representation. As you can imagine, uh, we are really far behind. There have been progress, but it's still not there. So there is a paradox in France. We do have so many talented, you know, um, person of color, Muslims uh, of whatever that means, you know, immigrant background. But at the, at, at the same time, when do we finally stop using like of immigrant background when you are right. like a third or fourth generation? But, you know, people of origin. Non-white, non-white, non non-white, non-white, non-white French. People. Not white French, actually. Yeah, I'm French, yeah. so for me, I, it's yeah. weird to you, but non-white French, really. Yeah. Uh, just take actors, you know, for example, Omar Sy, 
who is now in Los Angeles, by the way. He left France. Yeah. Okay. Lupin. Uh, yeah. Zinedine Zidane, who is mm -hmm. literally a hero slash legend in France. Okay. With white, non-whites, every like he the you don't Zizou. touch the guy. Zizou is a goat. Zizou is a goat. And I mean, I mean, like you touch him, literally it leads like to uh to sport official to resign for the commons, you know, like literally. Uh so Karim Benzema, uh, mm -hmm. who is a very talented and successful uh football player. Uh, by football, I mean like the real football, right? So Correct. what you guess call yeah, soccer. We get, it. We, we get it. Yeah, we get it. <laughs> right. <laughs> you play with your feet right um sure. but who is now uh, being the target uh, who is constantly being the target of you know uh french politicians etc but he exists yeah. right uh yeah. rashida dati um regardless what you think about these people uh political thoughts ideas uh rashida dati uh, who is of uh maghrebi uh, background i think moroccan algerian background uh, was Minister of Justice. Uh, Najed Vallaud Belkacem, who is of Moroccan background, uh, she, she was born in Morocco, actually, uh, was Minister of Education. But it's still extremely limited. And maybe contrary to what we have in the US, um, in France, to be successful, you have to forget who you are. Don't mm -hmm. bring your identity with you. And the access is still extremely limited. And as a consequence, uh, the portrayal of Muslims in in the media and the language used by, politi by politicians have definitely played a significant role in shaping public perception, perception and stigmatization of uh, the Muslim communities in France. Um, the, 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 the depiction of Muslims, of people of North African background, of Black people as well, uh, has often it has often been uh, influenced by um, various factors, such as cultural biases, political agenda, clearly, and different prejudices. So among them, uh, the stereotypical depiction. Uh, it, it is so cliche, like the figure of the, you know, angry, threatening Arab men or submitted, like, submitted, like, Muslim women. Uh, all, all the cliche you can think about, you have this on French media. Uh, you, we, we, I mean, when it comes to uh, news network, uh, now we have an equivalent of, of Fox News. We have a French Fox News. Oh, wow. uh, oh yeah, and, and the problem, 24-7, um, and I'm saying that literally, it's yeah. Muslims, 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 Muslims. Mm. Uh, and of course, when people watch those news net news, I mean, they are more like... For me, it's like white supremacist entertainment, really. Sure. Um, it, I mean, of course, you're being brainwashed eventually when you keep watching sure. that. I mean, I tried once. I'm like, okay, I'm going to watch CNews for like an hour. I ended up hating myself. I'm like, wow, we are that bad? Like, the Muslims are that bad? Those news networks are being held by one man who definitely okay. has a political agenda, uh, who is famous for his stance as well. And, uh, and of course, it's dangerous because we all know that the media has, and, and, and I teach you nothing here, has a deep influence on how society will react towards those communities and how they will vote. Mm -hmm. So uh, we let fake news going on. Uh, and, and the irony is that we do have hate speech laws. 
uh, being a racist is uh, is actually you can be is an offense. You can be condemned for it. But but the very interesting part is that we are going so freestyle with this that the more those pundits, those commentators, uh, are condemned for incitement to racial hatred. If I take Eric Zemmour, for example, uh, the pundit turned to be politician mm -hmm. after, uh, he was condemned many times for incitement. But the more it happens, it gives them it gives them the they are even more motivated to go further. Again, the sky is the limit. And uh, clearly, like we need to tackle this because this is not sustainable. And in a country where we keep saying that we have Republican values, and for me, Republican values is really what? Liberty, freedom, equality, everybody should be treated the same way and with fairness and, you know, and fraternity, uh, helping each other, being one people, regardless of our origins, religion, race, etc. Everything transcends because we are one people who uh, is kind to each other, who support each other, uh, who have the same access to public services and the same access to chance. Like, I think we are failing our own motto. And unfortunately, it has been a while. So again, I'm asking what kind of society do we want to live in? Because um, this should not be France. This is not France. And and I'm convinced that that's not what the majority of the French people want. Reem Sara Alouan, I want to thank you again for joining us here today on the Unpacking Islamophobia podcast. Thank you so much for having me. For more information, please visit bridge.georgetown.edu. See you next time.